And you know, this world has many things that are knocking at the door, just trying to come into your life and destroy you. And you say, no, no, I know a God who delivered his people from a fierce enemy. I find my refuge in him. I gave my life to him and he promised he would act on my behalf. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Word Processing's Cover to Cover series, in which our goal is to move through all 66 books of the Bible, one by one, in order to grow not only in our understanding of them individually, but also in our understanding of how they fit together as an inspired and cohesive whole. As you know, by this point in this series, I've been recruiting some outside help, men and women of God who have spent years studying particular books of the Bible. And this installment is no exception as we come to the prophetic book of Nahum. And to help us better understand this often neglected section of scripture, we welcome to the podcast Felipe Santos. Felipe is a missionary who has been serving at the Word of Life Bible Institute in Sao Paulo, Brazil since 2019, prior to which he and his family were stationed in South Korea and before that in Hungary. At his current post in Brazil, Felipe holds the position of Dean of the Graduate School and as a professor of Bible and Theology. Felipe, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for helping us out. You're welcome. It's my pleasure to be here. Let's start here, Felipe. When we come to the book of Nahum, where do we find ourselves in the story of scripture and how does it relate to the other books around it? Okay, well, the book of Nahum was written during in a very difficult time for God's people. Uh, it was the time when the Assyrian Empire controlled the ancient Near East. And the Assyrians were a very violent people who worshipped very violent gods. Historically, uh, we are in the middle of the 7th century before Christ. The kingdom of Israel in the north was no longer in existence, and the kingdom of Judah in the south was under constant threat and had an evil king on the throne, a king called Manasseh. Within the Old Testament, we are between chapters 21 and 23 of 2 Kings, getting close to the fall of Judah and uh, the Babylonian exile. Actually, Jerusalem surrendered to the Babylonians in 605 BC, and it was destroyed by the same Babylonians in 586 BC. Nahum, he delivers uh, his oracle around the year 660 BC, uh, which means about uh, 55 years before uh, the surrender of Jerusalem. He was a prophet from the kingdom of Judah in the south, the kingdom which was surviving by the time. And he was from a place called Elkosh, a small village or small town, probably 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem. Uh, Nahum's oracle is against the city of Nineveh. It's very specific, the city of Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire by that time. It was a large and powerful city, very, very large, very, very powerful. Uh, basically, nobody could take over Nineveh. And her people was arrogant and boastful. They thought they were invincible. Nobody could ever do anything to them. About a hundred years before Nahum, the prophet Jonah had visited Nineveh. He preached a message of judgment from God, but the people of Nineveh repented before the Lord. Then the Lord preserved the city of Nineveh and gave them a chance of living a new kind of life. But one generation later, they went back to their evil ways and started marching against the nations to conquer them through all sorts of violent means. 
and this is something uh, something really sad about the Assyrian history. They were very violent, and they treated people really bad with the the all, all sorts of evil things they could do. They did to terrify people they wanted to conquer. And about 60 years before Nahum's message, in the year 722 BC, it was the time of Israel in the north to suffer in the hands of these violent people. The Assyrians had invaded the kingdom of Israel and destroyed its capital, Samaria. Then they deported the Israelite tribes of the north to other parts of the Assyrian empire, which was pretty large far away from their homeland, and they never, ever returned. Actually, they it seems that they invented this idea of deport, deportation, of taking the whole people of a nation, of a place they conquered, and scattered these people to other parts of their empire so they would lose their identity. And Judah was terrified of this to happen with them also. And when when God then when God calls the prophet Nahum, who's not mentioned anywhere else in the scriptures, he tells the prophet to deliver an oracle of judgment against this evil city of Nineveh uh, for telling her uh, utter destruction that happens decades later. In fact, uh, so we can see with this book of Nahum that God's patience with the Assyrians had reached its end. And now it was time for a uh, time of retribution. He would no longer hold his judgment against Nineveh for all her evils. The oracle is incredibly detailed and it was proclaimed almost 50 years before Nineveh was finally destroyed by the Babylonians in 612 BC. Yeah, as you discuss that, as you describe it, you're describing something that's very heavy and fear-filled at times in a tense time for Judah. And certainly as you read this three-chapter book, you get that same sense. It is a fear-filled, tense time. The oracle depicts that same type of ethos. But before we get into some of those details, I'm wondering if now, if you can give us an outline of the book. I know it's only three chapters long, but maybe there's a structure to it that's discernible that you can give to us. Yes. Uh, in fact, the book of Nahum is easy to outline because it's only a three chapters book. And each chapter deals with one aspect of God's oracle in a very, like in a very, uh, we, we can limit them, know where it starts and where it ends each part. I would say chapter one, uh, the pronouncement of God's judgment upon, upon Nineveh. Chapter two, the description of God's judgment upon Nineveh. And chapter three, the reasons for God's judgment upon Nineveh. Just to explain a little bit more, the chapter one, the pronouncement of God's judgment upon the city. In this chapter, uh, we find out that who Nahum was and who God is. In the first eight verses of chapter one, God reveals some of his attributes, mentioning his anger, mercy, power over nature, protection of the faithful, and pursuit of his enemies. Then in the last seven verses of chapter one, God says he's coming after Nineveh for the sake of his people. Nineveh will be powerless against, against his might. Judah will be delivered. Nineveh will be obliterated and Judah will rejoice. Then in chapter two, the description of the judgment, uh, God describes how the enemies, Babylon and the Medes that will come against Assyria, against Nineveh, will prepare against Nineveh, then assault her and conquer her. The invasion of the city will put the, the enemy to flee and the city to be plundered. In the end, the city of Nineveh will remain desolated after her inhabitants are slaughtered by the enemy. And in chapter 3, the reasons God offered for the judgment of Nineveh. 
God says the reason he will destroy the city is because she is a bloody city. She came after his people, destroyed Israel, scattered its citizens, threatened Judah, challenged God, and did much evil against the nations. Now God will avenge Israel. Interestingly, uh, the prophet mentions the destruction of Thebes in Egypt as an example of a city who thought herself invisible, invincible but ended up destroyed. Thebes was destroyed around 663 BC, near the time Nahum writes, by the same Assyrians who will fill God's wrath in the near future. In this, God is saying that uh, it is futile to resist. Their leaders are useless. Their defenses will fall and all her neighbors will rejoice when Nineveh gets destroyed. So this is kind of a brief outline of the book of Nahum. That's excellent. Well, let's get into some of these details here of this tense, heavy content. The opening paragraph, as you rightly mentioned, it paints a pretty sobering picture of God, You know, one that continues through much of this text. For example, in just the second verse of the first chapter, it says, a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries. I'm going to venture a guess that many churches today probably aren't accustomed to nor comfortable with that language being used to describe their God. I'm wondering if you can help us, Felipe, understand how it is that God being avenging and wrathful is compatible with his being loving and gracious, like we like to talk about him mostly. This is, I think this is the, the, the biggest question of the book for our audience, for people living nowadays. Uh, in, in the same way, we, we want our lives to be in order and safe. God wants to see his world in order and his creatures safe from evil. I think we can all agree with that. Uh, in this sense, it's it's really hard to say that God is loving and gracious when all kinds of evil are happening in the world. Uh, we see, uh, just remember what we have been watching on TV in the last few days about Afghanistan, the terrible things that are happening there, uh, people being killed for no reason. It's, it's like it's insane. Children being tossed through the wall so the soldiers can escape and can, can save them. I, I don't know. It's unbelievable. And then these people, they are removed from their country and they are taken to another country, for example, in Qatar. And, uh, and, and when they get there, there is nothing for them. Violence gets this uh, happening with these people. And we say, yes, God is loving, God is gracious, but come on, how, how can love be active in this, in this world? How can you feel love? How can you see love going on if you live in a place with it, uh, with all, all kinds of evil are happening around you? How, how, can, be, how can God be gracious when, when everything is falling apart? Maybe Maybe because I live in a very in a wealthy country uh, uh, with a, a safe, I have my car, I have my house, I have uh, police on the streets to guard the streets, and and if I get sick, I can go to the hospital and any, anything. I I can I can say yes, I can see a little bit of God's loving, God's care, God's being gracious with me, with my family. But what about the rest of the world? What about when something goes wrong? So when when the Book of Nahum presents God, actually God presents Himself as avenging, as a wrathful God, as a God, a God of retribution, is that God wants the world to be in order and safe. And in order to do this, he has to intervene. 
it's like a referee in a game. I know you guys play hockey in uh, in Canada. It's like it's a very common sport there. Can you imagine if the referee doesn't jump in to to solve the conflicts within the the court, how the game wouldn't go on. Even even with a fight breaking here and there, uh, there is a referee. He comes and he stops the fight and he gives the he shows the the yellow card, whatever color of the card is, send people away so the game can continue. So God has to intervene and in order to do this it's gonna hurt it's gonna hurt us because he's gonna stop evil from happening mm -hmm. he's gonna stop uh injustice from happening to make things go to make things flow in the best way possible so he has to jump in it's like a father who has to jump in and 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 break uh break up a fight between his kids and tell them you are grounded you are grounded go think of what you did and you 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 guys will have to deal with this you guys have to be friends and not fight anymore so god has to do this and we know how uncomfortable it is when we have somebody jumping in to stop the mess we do but we know how necessary it is uh, for somebody to come to jump in and stop the mess we are doing uh, especially the the mess that this this world is seeing nowadays so I, can, I, I can't look to the, to the book of Nahum and see a contradiction between a God who is loving and gracious and a God who is avenging and wrathful. I think God is just. And God, there is one of the attributes of God that I like better. Actually, I, will, I love the attributes of God. It's like he, he, he's so incredible. But when we think of one of the attributes nobody talks about, it's like God is not passionate. He doesn't allow the mass of the universe the mass of this world, the mass that we make ourselves in, we put ourselves in, to change the way he sees justice, righteousness, uh, purity, holiness, and love. He, he, God doesn't lower his standards because we lower our standards. He keeps his standards up. And thank him for this, because if he didn't do this, the universe would fall apart and nobody would be here to save it. And we read a little further down in chapter one, and clearly God and his prophets see no conflict in his goodness and his wrath, his vengeance and his graciousness. In fact, in verse seven, it flat out says, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. I'm wondering, Felipe, when you read this text, and perhaps someone's listening to this and they're in their Bible reading plan and they come to Nahum and they read chapter one. And they know that they should be prompted to worship God. How do you see God as being avenging and wrathful and his goodness as well? How do you see it all being fodder for worship? Do you know what I mean? As God's people, how do we see all of that being motivation just to sit back in our chair and just say, wow, God, you are truly awesome. Well, I think, first of all, we have to, to look up to Christ because of our mass. Christ suffered on the cross. Hmm. Uh, he died for our sins. We made all things wrong with our lives. We just take our sinful nature, which is born with us, and we just play it out and let it go. Maybe you who are listening is, is a very calm person who doesn't do evil to anyone. It's like, okay, this word is not for me. But you know, everybody know we have some mess going on in, in, within us, in our minds, in our hearts. We know that sometimes we desire things that are not right. And we know that may, we make mistakes. And those mistakes can cost somebody, uh, somebody else's patience, somebody else's joy. So when we look at Christ, we, we find out that this whole thing that causes this world not to live in harmony was thrown upon him 
and it was judged on him and he had to die. So he had, he had to die. So we did not need to die. And he had to die also because he was powerful enough to carry this whole thing on his back and not be shaken by this. And just, it's like, uh, I was telling the students the other day, it's like there, there's an evangelistic way of showing the gospel. You, you, you grab like a bottle of water, clean water, and you throw some um, iodine inside and it gets all reddish and stuff. And then you throw some, I forgot the name of the thing in English, the bleach. You throw some bleach inside and the bleach makes the whole thing like uh, transparent again, clean again. It's like our whole mass, everybody's mass in this in the history was thrown upon Christ and like the the like the iodine thrown into the water, the clean water. But he was so powerful, so incredible that his blood it like it was like bleach and made everything transparent again because he cannot be he cannot be blamed by our guilt by by our impurities or anything else. So when I look at this, when I look at Christ, that's the first way I have to go. Christ paid the price. Christ died on the cross, so I don't have to die. And because Christ died on the cross and he rose on the third day, that's part of the answer also. He rose on the third day and he invites me to give me a new identity, to give me in a new identity, to make me part of a new people, a people who want to be like him, and third, to have a life like him. He, he invites me to have a reason, a mission to live in this world. So I look at Christ, I see God looked at me. He took all my mass, uh, put on the back of Christ, on Christ. Christ paid it all, cleansed me gave me a new life, a new identity, made me part of a new people and gave me a mission in this world that is totally different from, like I look at Nathan, I don't have to live like the Assyrians. I don't have to have a Nineveh lifestyle and wait until God, God gets really angry and, and shoot me down. I can take another approach to life. I can be more like the prophet Nahum. See this from afar, say those things will happen and start moving on in God's direction with Christ, helping me to move on on that direction. I, I don't know, maybe did I answer the question? <laughs> Absolutely. Like that is fodder for worship. To just understand that this wrath of God that's being described in chapter one, we know from the New Testament that the wrath of God dwelled on us, that we were enemies of God. And it was while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us so that we could experience the Lord is good, a stronghold through faith in Christ. I don't want to overly personalize it, but I see those themes coming from Nahum shooting down to the New Testament as well. Now, if, if I can go back just one second, uh, add one more thing to this. You say, okay, Philip, you pointed to Christ in the book of the Old Testament. <laughs> Actually, the Bible points to Christ. But what, what if, when I look at this, this first chapter, for example, is there anything there I can take it? I, I can take it for me. I can apply to my life. I can believe this is, this is for me nowadays. Yes, there is. The verse that we have been repeating over and over, the, the Lord is low to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means, uh, sorry, I read the, 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 wrong, the wrong verse. Uh, he, he said, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries. Okay, so God knows you. If you are taking refuge in him, he knows you are. And he knows he has to protect you because he promised he would do it. Can you imagine the people of Judah, 
Uh, Nahum was a prophet of the south of Judah. Can you imagine the people of Judah thinking, when will be the next time the Assyrians will come over our nation and try to destroy us again? They came here a few years ago, like a few decades ago. They destroyed many cities. They destroyed, they killed a lot of people, and they advanced against Jerusalem. God delivered us. When will be the next time they will come to do the same with us? Can you imagine people afraid of this the whole time? Can you imagine you were you, you, you born and you grow up and your parents and your grandparents keep telling you those terrifying stories and you are just waiting to see when your time is, when you're the next one on, in line to, to be threatened by those guys. And then the Lord comes with a prophet and says, the Lord is good, the stronghold in the day of trouble. That, that's incredible. Uh, they, they could uh, rely on the Lord. They could say, okay, it doesn't matter if the Assyrians come. God delivered us one day. He can deliver us again in the future, no matter when those guys come. So you who are listening to this, you are, who are reading the book of Nahum, think about this situation. You are You look for refuge in the Lord. And you know this world has many things that are knocking at the door, just trying to, to, to come into your life and destroy you and affect you in many ways. And you say, no, no, I know a God who delivered his people from a fierce enemy. I find my refuge in him. I gave my life to him and he promised he would act on my behalf and he will, he will protect you. He would take care of you. But even if something happened with you that you think or somebody around you think, oh, this is evil coming upon him. Where is his God? Where is his God who protected him? Where is his God who promised he's the deliverer and stuff? Wait, the story is not over yet. It will be over in the future. God will make everything perfect again. So God is the God who delivered his people in the past, protected them in the past. They, he takes care of them in the present, and he will continue taking, taking care of them in the future when he comes back to reestablish things, to make everything right again, and we will participate in that. So the book of Nahum has this purpose of showing people, okay, God is the same in the past. He's, he can do the same today, and he will always do the same for us because we are his people, and he, he is our refuge. Amen. Well, as you mentioned in the overview, chapters two and three have a great deal of specificity and detail when it comes to the promised destruction of Nineveh. Now, God, through Nahum, he promises to one day send mighty Nineveh running in chapter two, verse eight, and take away her great wealth in verse 10. God then promises to humiliate the city in chapter three, verses five and six, completely destroy the city and scatter the people in verses 18 and 19 of chapter three. Here's a straightforward question. Did this happen? as God promised it would, with all this specificity and all this detail, and what evidence do we have that it actually did? Yes, it did. <laughs> and it is incredible how it happened exactly as the prophet described. Nineveh, okay, let's go again. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians ruled the Near East by fear and might, and there was a lot of resentment going on against them. It happened that a group of people called the Chaldeans, who lived at southern Iraq, near the Persian Gulf, they decided it was enough. They would do something against those Assyrians. The Chaldeans, they joined forces with the Medes, a people who lived across the mountains to the east, nowadays Iran, and they moved against the Assyrians. The Chaldeans, they conquered Babylon, and then they forced the Assyrians, uh, the Assyrian forces to retreat northward. 
Then the Medes crossed the Zagros Mountains to the north of Nineveh and helped the Chaldeans surround the city. They attacked from the north and the Chaldeans from the south. Then Nineveh was located at, at one of the branches, a channel of the Tigris River. Uh, and this, this branch passed through the city of Nineveh, which was impenetrable. Historians say that Nineveh had, a, a, the walls were like 30 feet high. Uh, there were towers, 200 towers over the walls, which were 30 feet higher than the walls. And you could pass three chariots side by side on top of those walls. Nineveh could stock food, enough food for about 20 years. People could go inside. There was a moat, a 60 feet deep moat around the city, which was part of the river complex, protecting the city from the enemies. So they could lock themselves up and just wait there and let, the, the, let their uh, enemies to, to rot on the outside. So, but the, the attack was brilliant. The Chaldeans and the Medes, they uh, blocked the wall, the river coming through the city. They blocked, they, they built this big wall uh, to block the water. And then when there, were, there was a lot of water, this big pond of water, they broke the wall and the water came with such a strength that it destroyed part of the walls and inundated the city. The city was all flooded. So the armies which were who were defended the cities they got into they, they got into the the quagmire they became like uh, stuck in a quagmire with a lot of water and and rubble upon, upon them and then the armies the Medes attacked from the north and the the and the Chaldeans attacked from the other side and they got into the city and they slaughtered the people they destroyed the city and the parts that were now all wet they burned the whole thing and they they um, leveled the city of Nineveh. God says in the book of Nahum that Nineveh would be obliterated. This happened in the year 1612 BC, and Nineveh was found only in 1846, 1846 AD, like uh, 200 years ago, less than that, Nineveh was found again. Uh, so God made Nineveh to disappear. If you want to go to Nineveh nowadays, you can go visit Mosul. Mosul is this big city at the north of Iraq. Actually, you can. It's not a nice place to visit now because because of all the destruction that ISIS uh, uh, did there. But it's this big city in north northern Iraq, Mosul, and Nineveh is there. Mosul is actually Nineveh, and you can find about the story that I just told you. You can find the story in a clay tablet from that time. Uh, which was part of the archives of the, of the Babylonians, who became the dominant empire after the Assyrians. And this, this clay tablet, it is now in the British Museum. And there is a historian from the first century BC who wrote this story using the work of another historian called Pisces from around that time that Nineveh was destroyed. So it is impressive to find out that Nahum predicted the fall of Nineveh in details almost half a century earlier than the, the fall of the city actually happened. As New Testament Christians, it shouldn't, I guess, surprise us that the specificity of these prophecies comes true as God said it would. We celebrate every Christmas. Blessed are you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. 
you know, and lo and behold, Christ comes to Bethlehem. The specificity is important. And yet at the same time, I read Nahum and there's so much detail here that it's amazing. It is amazing to be reminded that God makes good on his word down to the detail. It's just incredible. Yeah. You know, in what is most important for me when it comes to historical background, I really love to study this part. And from the time I decided to dig into uh, the, the literature of those days, I was impressed. It's not like a pastor's talk. Oh, this happened. A theologian talk. Oh, this happened that way. That no, you you can actually see the the the, the fonts. You can read the the script the inscription saying this things really happened. And when you compare like Nahum with the the inscription and with the the historian who wrote about, you say, oh my word, it's it's phenomenal. And this is only one part of the Bible which which is the same. You, we which we talked, uh, we can approach this way. You can find many other documents from the ancient world who talks about the way the Bible described things, and you feel uh, you become like impressed mm-hmm. how God is really really in control of history. What would you say is the main thrust of this book, Felipe? Why is it important? Why would God preserve it for us? Is it mainly historical? Is it theological? Is it prophetic? What is it mainly? We live in a moral universe, and we are all answerable to God. Uh, This is what the Bible teaches. And I would say this is what we can see just looking around us. Nineveh had already, uh, Nineveh had every chance to stop being a bully. The Assyrians behaved in an evil manner until God said enough is enough. So people people think they can go on doing everything uh, they can to achieve whatever they want, even destroying the very concept of truth to build the foundations of their selfishness. This is what we see in our, in our, in our times. This is not the kind of world God wanted us to build for ourselves and for the next generations. The Bible says that we are sinners, yes, and we need Jesus to give us the heart God wants us to have. But one day this offer will no longer be available and he will return to make things right on his own terms. God showed Nineveh the way to repentance, the way to forgiveness, and the way to make a difference in the world because they were the most powerful nation. They could do a lot if they wanted, a lot of good if they wanted, but they They said, yeah, that's not what we want. So the book of Nahum is a prophetic, it's a prophetic book pointing to the future, foretelling things that did not happen by his time. Yes, it is. The book of Nahum is a book deep in theology because with a lot of stuff uh, you can see about the attributes of God and, and, and and other issues. Yes, it is. But the book of Nahum is a, is a very realistic book. Uh, to calls back to this idea that actions have consequences in the world that God created for a purpose. And if we don't find out, if don't tune up our lives to the plans of God, to what God wants us to do, to the way God wants us to live, to the mission of God in this world, one day when he comes back to make everything right again, one day when he steps into history again with his own person to establish uh, the plans he has for the future, it will be too late. So Nineveh had a chance. They did not take it. So now it's time to see God working and not having the chance of participating on his side, but of being on the other side, the side that will be punished by his uh, justice. 
a sobering, weighty message in this little book for sure. I wonder if we can end a little bit more on the personal level, Felipe. During your years of study, how has God used Nahum in your life to teach, reprove, correct, or train you in righteousness? I would say that the book of Nahum teaches me a lot that there is a limit for my bad habits. There is a limit for my wrong attitudes. There is a limit for my stubbornness because God acts. Different seasons of our lives, God will step in and act to, it's kind of check, a system of checks and balances here and there. God is going to use his word. God is going to use somebody. God is going to use a situation to call my attention back to him. And he will help me see whatever has to be fixed in my life. So the book of Nahum really teaches me that God doesn't need my good works. God doesn't need my life to be uh, whatever I think he wants or he needs. God simply calls me his son, and as his son, he expects me to show uh, that I'm part of his family. The way I act toward my parents, it's like I show them my love, uh, not, because they are, not, not because they do something for me, just because they are my parents. They are part of my family. And I knew, I know that my mom, somebody's, I, I'm, I'm, I'm married. I don't live with my mom anymore, but I know sometimes my mom is going to call me. She calls me like every other week or every week we, we talk often. And sometimes she asks me, how are you doing? Oh yeah, you were doing this. Wow. So how, how, how are things happening according to the, the decisions you were making? Sometimes a brother in Christ, sometimes a pastor, they come and they ask the same questions. And God uses them to remind me that there's a limit for how far I can go from him if I really love him. And I should pay attention. So the, the people of Nineveh demonstrated they did not love God because they abandoned him after one generation, after Jonah. But remember that this book wasn't written for, Jude, for, for Nineveh. This book wasn't written for the Assyrians. This book was written for Judah, for the people of God, the, oh, the very people of God. This book was written for the people who lived in Jerusalem, who lived in, in, in God, God's promised land. And it's like, okay, see how the Assyrians are doing? So how are you guys doing? How, how, did you go far away from me? How are you responding to the issues of life that you are facing on, on a daily basis? Yes, God, you know, but I'm, I'm doing this because I'm worried. I'm afraid. I don't know. Whatever. What happens if the Assyrians come after me? No, I'm not talking about the Assyrians. This is the oracle I have against them. They did a lot. Enough is enough. I'm going to act against them. But how am I going to act against you? Do you think the way I act against the Assyrians would be, would be the, the best approach for me to act with you? Or do you think there is another way for me to act with you? I'm going to protect you. You are part of my family. You are my son. But how is our relationship going on? The book of Nahum tells this. I, I preached a series years ago about the book of Nahum. And I found out that when you look at the mess, when you look at the book from the perspective of Judah, the, the things you see in the book are hope, uh, restoration, care and everything else that we expect from our father. And when we finish this book, we can go back to God and say, 
the, yes, Lord, it's, it's, I don't want to be an Assyrian. I don't know. I don't want to be a Ninevite. I want to be somebody who lives according to your will, according to your plan, according to what you expect from me, because I'm part of your family. I'm not part of the bad guys. And if I'm part of your family, not part of those bad guys, I'm going to behave of your, like, a, like your child. I'm not going to behave like the bullies that those people who do not know you are. I'm not going to act the way those people who rejected you have been acting. You, you have something more for me. Yeah, we sometimes forget that the warnings that God provides, the promises he keeps, the protection he offers are all acts of his gracious love for his people as well. And we see that all over this book. I'm with you on that. I see it all over the place. Certainly, it is bad news for Nineveh, um, but it is a message of hope for God's people who, by the way, were wayward from time to time, and yet the Lord keeps his promises and protects them and preserves them. Exactly. So when, when God told, uh, somebody says, do not learn with your own mistakes, learn with other people's mistakes. So maybe, maybe this is what Nahum was, was trying to tell Judah, mm. learn with their mistakes, not, do not go that, that do not go down the way they did change because there is still time. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for helping us out today, Felipe. I really appreciate it. Helping us understand this little, again, often neglected, unfortunately, book of the Bible. Uh, thanks for helping us unpack it a little bit more and apply it to our lives. Oh, my pleasure. It was great to be here with you to talk about this book, to talk about the Bible. This is what I like to do most. And thank you for inviting me. And God bless you and everybody else who's listening to this podcast. Thanks for joining us this week. For more information about Oak Ridge Bible Chapel, the ministries of the church, or for more resources like this one, please visit oakridgebiblechapel.org. And make sure to join us next week as together we make our way through the Bible cover to cover.